The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com events where you can get your tickets. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's Wednesday, November the 15th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. It is almost four months now since Spain went to the polls to elect a new parliament. And this week, it looks as if Socialist Party leader Pedro Sanchez is about to be confirmed for a new term as prime minister. But the political road to that outcome has been complex and highly contentious, bringing to the fore all the divisions over ideology and identity which characterise the contemporary political scene in the EU's fourth largest country. Today, we wanted to dig a little deeper into what's happening and what is likely to happen next in Spain. So to do that, I'm joined by author and journalist Paddy Woodworth, who has written extensively on Spanish politics and on the conflicts over regional autonomy and national identity, which are never far below the surface. Hi, Paddy. Hugh, how are you? I'm very good. Um, We're also joined on the line from Madrid by Guy Hedgeco, who reports on Spain for the Irish Times. Guy, if I could go to you first, I think you're on the street near the Parliament. Um, So this is live as we speak from the streets of Madrid. Yes. Hi there, Hugh. Yeah, I'm uh, just near the Congress building where the investiture debate uh, is going to take place today um, and tomorrow. So um, it's livening up here at the moment and there's a little bit of noise out on the street, as you might be able to hear. We might talk about the noise that's been on the street over the last while, but first of all, maybe you could just tell us what's likely to happen today in the Parliament. Well, we th- today is the first of uh, a day of the, this two-day process of the investiture. So it's just the debate today when uh, Pedro Sanchez will give a speech outlining why he should be given the chance to form a government, uh, why uh, he believes this will be a stable majority uh, for the next four years and his plans for the next four years, uh, at least to an extent, we'll be hearing some of his plans for the next four years. But what we'll also be hearing uh, will be speeches from the opposition. And we expect those to be extremely strongly worded as they um, criticise uh, the amnesty deal he's cut with nationalists in order to get their support uh, to be able to form this government. Um, so we're expecting a very lively debate to take place today. 
and then tomorrow will be the the vote itself, which he's expected to win. Well, I, I want to trace the line of sort of how how we got here ultimately. But um, first of all, I suppose to go back to the election itself, that was a snap election called by Sanchez, and really nobody expected him to be in a position to form another government in advance of that election taking place. He was tipped to to lose. Yes, um, I mean it was a surprise when he called the election. It was it was supposed to take place in theory at the end of this year. Um, he called it six months or so early. It was the first ever uh, election held in the middle of summer. A lot of people thought it was a bad idea, that it was going to be a disaster for Sanchez. His socialists, or the left in general, had performed quite poorly in some local elections uh, just a couple of months earlier. And the feeling was that that was going to be repeated in the general election. His socialists really outperformed expectations. Um, and although they didn't win the election, um, they made some very slight gains and they pushed the, the winners of the election, the Conservative Popular Party, um, quite close. And as a result of that, the, the Popular Party was not able to form a government when it tried to back in September. It only had the support of the, of the main parties of the far right box and it fell slightly short of uh, the seats it needed to form a government. Uh, Pedro Sanchez, by contrast, had a slightly better uh, chance of forming a new government. Um, but he needed the support of parties to his left. That was fairly straightforward. But the, the more challenging thing for him was to get the support of uh, Catalan and Basque nationalists. Um, and that was where the real challenge lay. He had to have the support of those smaller regional parties in order to be able to form this majority. It's unusual, Paddy, if I could bring you in, is that, you know, Spain is a large country with a relatively proportional electoral system. But for most of the time since the return to democracy in the 1970s, it's been a largely dominated by these two political parties, the, the Popular Party and the, and, and the Socialists. But things have become more fragmented in recent years. They have become more fragmented, but it's also important to remember that governments formed by the Socialist Party or particularly, actually, the Conservative Partido Popular have depended on the support very often of Catalan nationalists. But Catalan nationalism has gone through a radical transformation in the last 15 years. So that changes the picture very much. I mean, one of the great ironies of this situation is that unlike the, certainly unlike the radical Basque nationalists, Catalan nationalism generally was pretty content with autonomy. It wasn't interested in independence. What it wanted was to have its hands on the levers of power in Madrid through supporting minority governments when that occurred. So, um, yeah, the, the fragmentation has become, and it's, of course, it's also the fragmentation on the left that you now have Sumar, you have Podemos, um, forming part of Sumar but not being happy within Sumar. You've all these little micro-fragmentations going on. You've also very deep, very deep hostility between the two pro-independence Catalan parties. There's an awful lot of different moving pieces in this jigsaw that do certainly... Um, so that's a long-winded way of coming around to saying, I agree with you, this is more complicated than any previous situation. And in a way, one could say that what we're seeing in Spain is what we've seen in a lot of democracies over the last over the last 10 or 15 years, particularly since the financial crisis of 2008. And you had the rise of Podemos, who you mentioned their indirect uh, reaction to that, and another another party, the Citizens' Party, which seems to have gone into a kind of a, a, a state of terminal decline. It so has. this is a new kind of a landscape for Spanish politics to tussle with. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And in 
many ways, um, you know, it's a good thing that both the Partido Popular and the Socialists uh, have um, uh, been tainted by pretty, pretty, uh, pretty uh, strong cases of corruption in their time in power. And uh, it, 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 it was, I think it was a good thing that, that new forces emerged. But th- there's two things about this situation. One is the sheer complexity of it, but the other is the level of anger and division. Now, anger and division isn't new in Spanish politics. And the, the divisions that go back to the Civil War are very profound. Uh, but uh, the, the level of anger at the moment and the way in which perhaps particularly now the Partido Popular seems to be willing to actually actually consider Sanchez to be an illegitimate prime minister. And there, you know, phrases like coup d'etat are floating around. And, um, and on the street, much, much stronger phrases are floating around. And this, you know, um, fostering demonstrations outside Socialist Party offices right across Spain. These are very serious and worrying developments. So, Guy, would you agree with that in terms of, I presume you've been seeing some of that on the streets in Madrid in, in recent weeks, and indeed you, you might see it today. One, one other factor we haven't mentioned yet is the rise of, of the Vox Party, the, the far-right party, who were the, really the only potential partners for the Party Popular if they weren't, uh, party, Partido Popular, if they weren't going to get a majority. Vox underperformed at the last election, but they're still a potent force, and they're they're again another phenomenon which we've seen in other countries, which is the rise of uh, of, of the populist hard right. Yeah, they are, but they're also unusual in that they are a far right party, which um, can really owe its popularity and its rise not so much to issues like immigration, but more to uh, the issue of of separatism and, and nationalism, and that's very unusual, I think, compared to other European countries. You know, Vox really came to the fore. Uh, just when the when the Catalan issue really exploded back in 2017, and then in a couple of years after that, when it got involved in uh, presenting a lawsuit um, against Catalan nationalists who were um, involved in leading uh, the the failed bid for independence in 2017, and that really put them at the centre of the the political map. Um, and since then, their fortunes have sort of waxed and waned to a certain extent, according to the Catalan situation. So. As you say, they underperformed in the last general election, um, and that really was when the, when the Catalan situation had had become relatively calm. Now, of course, the Catalan situation has come to the fore again, and and Vox really feed off that. So when the tensions are high regarding nationalism, whether it's Basque nationalism um, or Catalan nationalism, Vox uh, Vox really enjoys that. Their support tends to go up. You see them out on the streets. So we've seen, for example, the leader of Vox. Santiago Abascal out on the street um, protesting, um, the, taking part in these protests um, that have been pl- taking place every night outside the Socialist Party headquarters for the last 10 days, almost two weeks now, against Sanchez and the amnesty. Um, and Vox enjoy that. Now, it's interesting because there have also been other, let's say, more perhaps more moderate voters who've been taking part in the demonstrations as well, or they would consider themselves more moderate. But um, it's become, in some cases, increasingly hard to see the division between supposedly more moderate voters and the, the, the hard right voters out on the street, because you, you see them out protesting, and we've seen a lot of, sort of 
chants against Sanchez, calling him a criminal, saying he should be put in prison. We've also heard a lot of racist, Islamophobic chants um, and other chants that you would normally associate with the far right. But the line seems to be blurring between um, the voters of the far right and, and their discourse and that being used by voters of the, the popular party. And we're also seeing that um, at a political level. Paddy referred to that as well, whereby the, um, the, the supposed more moderate conservatives in many cases are using the language of the far right, talking about the dictatorship, talking about a coup d'etat, for example. So it's, the lines seem, do seem to be blurring there very much. I noticed, Paddy, looking at recent, recent opinion polls, that you know, even among Socialist Party voters in, you know, outside Catalonia and the Basque Country, they're, they're deeply opposed you know, by a factor of two to one, I think, to, to, uh, to this amnesty. So obviously this is a feeling that runs very deep. I think one of the mistakes sometimes we make in Ireland, uh, and I know you've, you've written about this from various perspectives, is we try and apply the Irish framework because it has been done in the past and Sinn Féin Ardesh last weekend, there were representatives of Catalonia and, and Basque nationalist parties there. And while there are similarities, there are also profound differences. Oh, there are huge differences. But I think, you know, one of the things we talk a lot about, quite rightly, about Catalan nationalism and Basque nationalism, we also need to talk about Spanish nationalism, mm. which is a very, very problematic force. And when Guy talks there about blurring of lines between the far right and more mainstream Citizens, I, I'm not so sure about that, though I think that happens. Um, I think that there is a core problem and the roots of the current situation in many ways lie in the Spanish transition to democracy and the fact that the legacy of the dictatorship was never properly dealt with. There are 100,000 plus bodies in Spain in unmarked graves from the Civil War that have still not been excavated or identified the Partido Popular is the party that has inherited the legacy of the dictatorship in many ways and had to be dragged kicking and screaming over a number of parliamentary sessions to even condemn the dictatorship uh, around the, uh, this is around the 2000s. And uh, so I, I have long felt that while there are genuine democratic conservatives within the Partido Popular and quite a number of them. The hard right has always been hiding in plain sight within the Partido Popular. So it's not a normal Christian democratic it's party It's not a normal Christian. You cannot imagine a German Christian Democrat making the sort of nostalgic and sympathetic comments about Hitler that uh, members of the Partido, very senior members of the Partido Popular have made about Franco. So the, the the dispensation which happened with the transition of power in the in the in the, in the late nineteen seventies, which was you know I think widely viewed as a remarkable success, that peaceful transition to democracy, it left too too much unfinished business. I believe it did. It left a, it left a great deal of unfinished business. Could it have been done otherwise without more bloodshed? And there was bloodshed during the transition. Mm. We should never forget that on on many sides. Um, that's impossible to say now. But I think the legacy has to be dealt with. And I think there is this huge problem that Guy has identified that the push-button issue for the far right, for the right, and indeed, yes, for many, particularly perhaps uh, in, in, province, in, in regions like uh, Andalusia and Extremadura among the Socialist Party voters, there is this 
seething resentment that the Catalans and the Basques are privileged. That's one of the huge differences with the Northern Irish situation, that, you know, if the Catalans and the Basques are oppressed nations, they're oppressed nations that are richer than most of the rest of the state. And there is this resentment against them and this fear. It's a bit like the fear in Britain of the Scottish referendum. What is Spain if Catalonia and the Basque country go? What's mm. left and, and, and how would it function and what would its position be in Europe? So there is a genuine existential concern there uh, that perhaps the Catalans and the Basques are nationalists. And it's very important to say, too, that not all Basques are nationalists or some Basques are Spanish nationalists. There's, you know, there are all these... There is incredible complexity there, isn't yeah. it? Even looking at the, at the results of the elections in the areas where, where Basque nationalist parties are strongest... You know, the Partido Popular and the Socialists also figure very strongly there. And the same is true yeah. in Catalonia. I mean, it, it is not remotely clear that there is a, that there is majority support for, for, for moves towards independence. At all. No, but what's very interesting, and I, I think, you know, I, I think the problem, the current problem derives from the transition, yes, but much more recently from the decision that Partido Popular took between 2006 and 2010, which was to use the courts to uh, basically castrate a new Catalan statute of autonomy. That was what radicalised Catalan nationalism towards independence. They took all the right steps. Their parliament and the Madrid parliament approved a statute of autonomy, a new statute of autonomy, and the Partido Popular took it to the constitutional court. And this issue of, I think I would agree, the, the issue now, and particularly now at the amnesty, the issue of the role of the courts is becoming absolutely central. But there's no doubt that the, the, the because Catalan and Basque independence is a push-button issue for the right, and the right have used the courts to push that button harder and harder and harder, Spain is in a kind of institutional crisis. I mean, when people look at these kinds of factors, things like people, uh, Guy, questioning the legitimacy of the constitutional order and of the courts, people talking about legislative coups, these are always always seen as, I think correctly, alarm signals for a democracy. I mean, are there questions about the health of Spanish democracy? I think this particular crisis and you know Pedro Sanchez's attempts to form this government have reopened the kind of concerns about Spain's uh, constitutional democracy that we saw back in 2017. In that case, it was all about the territorial issue. It was purely about Catalonia. Um, the tensions, to a great extent, were confined to Catalonia, within Catalonia, um, and how Catalonia could uh, you know, uh, consolidate or, or not its relationship with the rest of Spain. This time, those sort of tensions and doubts about Spain's uh, transition and, and the, the constitutional order have been sort of um, transferred on, onto a national scale because this is now um, a debate about the legitimacy of the national government and about the courts and the relationship between the two and the separation of powers. So I think a lot of people are talking about this in those sort of terms. Now, opponents of Pedro Sanchez are simply saying this is a, a crisis that he has created. He, he is undermining um, those institutions, um, the separation of powers, um, people on the left um, are saying the opposite. They're saying that it's precisely um, the, the the courts in many cases um, who many judges who've expressed, for example, doubts about this amnesty law. They are not behaving in a constitutional way because they're simply unhappy at the fact that 
yes, again, Pedro Sanchez is able to form a, a new government. So I think there are all there are all sorts of doubts. Going back to Paddy's point about the the transition, I think I think without a doubt, as far as I'm concerned, the the big pending issue of the transition is the the judiciary and the Catalan issue of six years ago really exposed the weakness of the of the judiciary, doubts about the judiciary, doubts about its independence. Um, and about its fitness for purpose in many cases. Um, so I think that remains a huge doubt. Um, but of course, there have been other there are other institutions which are um, are in doubt as well. Obviously, there's the royal family with the scandals it's seen, um, political parties which have seen scandals, um, and Congress itself with a lot of people, you know, doubting the the legitimacy of this process that is taking place. In, the, in Congress, just a couple of hundred yards away from me. So, yes, it, it might, is my answer to, to your question there, that a lot of people see this uh, situation right now as a major challenge or questioning of uh, Spanish democracy. And we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back right after this. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back. Guy and Patty are still here. Patty, uh Guy was just talking, I think, agreeing with with you essentially about about some of those issues. Maybe we should just make it clear because I don't think we did what happened six years ago in Catalonia because it's very unusual. It was a what what was deemed to be an illegitimate referendum uh, was held by the the Catalan nationalist parties, and as a result, hundreds, if not thousands, of people were convicted of crimes. No, not thousands, but uh, you see, even to answer that question almost makes forces one to take up a political position because uh, according to uh, the Partido Popular and a large section of the Spanish judiciary, uh, what happened was an illegal referendum. Uh, you, could say, you could put it differently and say what happened was a referendum which had no legal status. And I think a sensible, calm um, central government uh, which was not trying to instrumentalize the issue for its own purposes, would have simply allowed that referendum to go ahead and and said, but it has absolutely no legitimacy. We don't recognize its outcome. It's a piece of political theater. Good luck to you. Which is what it was, really, wasn't it? That's yeah, Well, in the eyes of some... <laughs> I don't know how Guy feels about this. I, I always feel that in some ways, the new Catalan nationalism, to some degree, is faking it. They, they are pushing very hard, but when they actually had the opportunity 
to really make the big declaration for independence. Puigdemont stayed inside the palace and didn't come out to the platform. You know, this was this moment of he could have been Lenin at the Finland station. But no, they kind of pulled back. So I think to a degree it was political theatre. But I think the point is that the huge overreaction by the Partido Popular in government at the time, sending in riot police, having 80-year-old women being dragged out of polling booths. Whether those polling booths were theatres or not, what are policemen with batons doing dragging citizens out onto the street and beating them up? That was crazy. And then bringing these charges of sedition against the politicians who had organised this referendum of whatever status and imprisoning them. I mean, this was all completely unnecessary. And I think, I do think the role of the judiciary then and now is absolutely central. And I would just say that, like, having followed Spanish politics even longer than Guy has, and as an outsider... I've always been shocked by attending. I've covered a lot of very difficult political trials related to terrorism and state terrorism in Spain. And I've always been shocked that, you know, it was absolutely clear that the judges are voting, are voting because it's often a majority decision, Mm. uh, along political lines. And so, you know, by the composition of the court, you know what the outcome is going to be. And, And there have been... Court cases where even though I believed I believed that somebody was guilty of sin, it was clear to me that there wasn't sufficient evidence to convict. And yet they were convicted if there was a So so is that based on a on a politic a highly politicized appointments process, in the same way as you have, for example, in the United States these days to some extent as well? Y- Yes, to a degree. And Guy Guy could be much more precise about the current situation because uh, one of the big judicial scandals in Spain at the moment is that the, the general counsel for the judiciary, which is supposed to kind of supervise judicial affairs generally, um, has not been renewed. It's five years out of date. It's dominated by conservatives, and yet it is still sitting there and refusing to renew itself. Um, that that is a, a a big problem. The the problem now, which is another layer that we haven't mentioned, is that the the amnesty for these politicians who were convicted, uh, and, and and there were. Um, Dozens of them facing, uh, you know, pretty pretty heavy charges. I mean, the most prominent one, of course, is Puigdemont, who you refer to, who's been in exile in Belgium for several years now. That's right. He chose yeah. exile rather than rather than to face charges. And uh, um, we shouldn't remember too that uh, quite a number of policemen were charged and convicted of brutality. So they too will be will be beneficiaries of this amnesty. But one of the one of the really complicated. I'm sorry to use that word again issues that is now coming up is that this is all going to the level of the European Parliament. And uh, so the, the, uh, the Partido Popular are saying that the, uh, some of the elements of the amnesty law are akin to what Hungary and Poland were doing with their judiciaries. So they're going to try to use the European Parliament to sanction Sanchez. And that's a really... Really problematic position for the EU to be in. Before we move on to what this government is going to be like, uh, if it does, as it seems, is going to be, it could be elected, Guy, just, just to ask you about that, about those 
those questions of of European law. And also, the, I mean, this amnesty, I mean, there have in, you know, Spain has had its own peace processes of sorts, particularly within the, in, in the Basque country. And there have been pardons, as I understand it, in the time. But I mean, I, I read somewhere, I'm not sure if this is correct, that this is the first amnesty per se since the transition of power in the in the 1970s. Is that correct? Yes. I mean, there was an amnesty in 1977, which was just a year before the, the constitution, which is in place now, was approved. Um, and that was seen as a major step towards this sort of national reconciliation. The idea being that people um, who could have faced charges on both sides, whether they were from the Franco regime, people who might have faced charges for, for example, human rights violations, torture and so on, they would not face charges, but nor would uh, political opponents on the left, people who had essentially been underground and were uh, possibly facing um, potential charges for, for that sort of uh, opposition activity under the dictatorship, nor would they face charges. So this is the first amnesty uh, since then. And yes, there have been a, a, the, the, the sort of criticism that you often hear of this amnesty is one which harks back to the 1978 constitution and this almost um, sort of sacred idea that many people seem to have of the 78 constitution um, as this, this text which allowed Spain to move on from the dictatorship. Um, and many of the critics of this amnesty law, critics of Sanchez, are saying that he is somehow unstitching the, the constitution and un unstitching the transition process itself by doing that. Um, because he's disrespecting the spirit of the constitution, um, which was such a, uh, an inter integral part of Spain, Spain's movement into, away from the dictatorship, into parliamentary democracy. Um, so we, you mentioned there the, this, these, these appeals to Europe. I mean, this is rather ironic because this is something that the, the Catalan nationalists were doing six years ago when they were facing the wrath of the, the, the government of Mariano Rajoy in Madrid when they tried to break away from Spain. They were appealing to Europe, Europe's institutions, also to other European countries to support them, saying, you know, look at what, what's happening here. This is what Catalans were saying six years ago. Look at what, what's happening here. The Spanish government is behaving in, in an unlawful way, repressing us. Now you have the, the Spanish political right, um, the conservatives and the far right, saying the same thing, um, essentially, to Europe's institutions um, and saying, appealing to them, saying, look at what this, uh, this left-wing um, acting prime minister is doing purely to try and cling on to power. So there's a sort of a, a major irony there that they're essentially appealing um, to to Europe for the same reasons that Catalan nationalists were doing so six years ago. One of the things that strikes me about all this, Paddy, as a kind of a neophyte introducing myself to it, is that if we were discussing an election nearly any other European country, we would at least have mentioned at some point the state of the Spanish economy, how it's coping in the wake of the pandemic, the war in Ukraine, inflation, energy prices, all those kinds of things. And we haven't mentioned them once. Where does that all fit into it? There's us? a very good reason why we haven't, because the right don't really mention them themselves. So notoriously, during the last election campaign, the right's favourite slogan was que te vote chapote, which essentially meant that Eto would vote for Sanchez. 
And ETA has not existed for five years. Unlike the IRA, it dissolved itself completely. And yet, and, and so Sanchez made a very clever speech where he said to the Partido Popular, what is your policy on housing? ETA. What is your policy on health? ETA. What is your policy on agriculture? ETA. And it's a caricature, but it's, it, it, it has a strong point. And I think that the thing, the heartbreaking thing really is that Sanchez's government, I think, could be a government for that could be very good for climate, for biodiversity, for social equality, for integration of immigrants, for all these issues that are critically important. But it is, the, and so the only lever with which the right can derail it is actually Spanish nationalism. But I would like to say one other thing that is really, really unfortunate is that Sanchez, during the election campaign, never mentioned an amnesty. He did not campaign on the basis of an amnesty. And so he is open to the accusation that he is being totally opportunist and that it is only because of this razor sharp balance of power within the parliament that he has made these concessions. Now, you could say that, you know, all politics is horse trading to a degree, but this is a very big issue. And I think that those there are people who are, have really legitimate concerns. That he doesn't uh, have a mandate that, because he never mentioned it. Yes. Yeah. 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 And it's a very big thing to do without a mandate. What do you think of that guy? Well, I, I think that, yeah, that, I mean, that's the, the, constantly the criticism that's thrown at him, that literally weeks before the, the general election in July, he had ruled out the idea of uh, of an amnesty. He said it's not constitutional. I won't consider it. Mm. Um, and you know, other members of his government had said that. Ministers in his government had said that. And yet, you know, within days of the election result uh, coming through, it was apparent that he was willing to not just consider it but negotiate this this amnesty uh, in order to form a new government. Now, the big worry for many um, unionist Spaniards, if you like, is that if he can change his mind on that. Why wouldn't he change his mind on the even bigger issue for, for, for everyone, really, which is the possibility of a referendum on independence? And that's the ultimate goal of the, the Catalan independence movement, um, to have a you know, Scotland-style independence referendum that has the blessing of the central government, and which is held with full guarantees, um, and which would be a binding referendum on independence. Now, I should point out at the moment, polls suggest that support for Catalan independence within Catalonia is in the low 40s at the moment. That's you know, pretty low compared to six years ago when it was in the high 40s or close to 50%. But that is the worry of many people. They, they think, well, if Pedro Sanchez can be so sort of um, self-serving or cynical, they would say, that he would change his mind on the amnesty, why wouldn't he change his mind on the bigger issue of a referendum? Um, again, he has ruled out the referendum. He said he would never, he would never hold a referendum. That's a sort of a red line he would never cross. But he said, he said he'd never grant an amnesty either. I mean, to yeah. what extent, how stable will this government be? I mean, you know, even if the, the Catalan nationalists vote to elect him as prime minister, you know, is there a, is there a sort of a program for government which they're signed up to? Are there other concessions which he has agreed to them? How much do we know about all of that? Well, we don't know very much really because the the general election campaign really didn't go into those issues in a great deal of uh, depth. What Sanchez sort of campaigned on was that he was going to continue the kind of reforms that he'd been introducing throughout the previous. Um, almost four years in a coalition government with with Podemos. So I think we can expect more of the same in the sense of, you know, green policies, you know, the transition to the green economy, 
um, gender equality, more rights for the LGBTQ community and so on, um, issues which are very close to the heart of um, his future coalition partner, which will be Soumad, which includes Podemos. But we don't know a, a great deal in the way of specifics. Now, you asked there about the issue of the stability of this government. I think it's going to be an extremely unstable uh, government, possibly the most unstable government um, that we've seen for decades, um, because purely because you have um, Carlos Puigdemont and, and Junts per Catalunya, his, his Together for Catalonia party, able to decide whether it, it lives or dies um, and the relationship between Puigdemont and Sanchez, uh, or Puigdemont and Madrid in general, is is so unhealthy, let's say, that it, it could fall apart at any moment. There are just seven votes that Puigdemont uh, controls in Parliament, but they hold the key to the, the stability of this government. And if Sanchez doesn't give him what he wants, it could fall apart at any time. I suppose the question then, Paris, is what does Puigdemont want um, and how far will he push it? Because presumably, as in any situation like this, he has to make a calculation of, you know, who benefits if he does force another election. This is a complete unknown. He is a bit of a wild card. And uh, what I do think that, you know, Sanchez does deserve credit for is that in in his previous administration, in issuing pardons for some of the heaviest sentences, he did defuse the Catalan crisis and he brought the left Republicans kind of back into the fold of democratic engagement. And with these talks with Puigdemont, Puigdemont has actually backed away from a lot of the demands he was making even a few weeks ago. And so uh, Sanchez could be credited with defusing the Catalan crisis, whereas all the Partido Popular do with the Catalan crisis is pour petrol on it because it benefits them. And uh, so um, it may be, it may be that Puigdemont will not push for a referendum in this legislature. And I think it would be extremely foolish to that if uh, I think personally, I think a referendum would be a good thing because I think it would clear the air. And I think, as Guy says, it is almost certain that both in the Basque country and in Catalonia, there would be a majority in favour of remaining within the Spanish state. This fear of a referendum, this existential fear of a referendum is really quite extraordinary and I think does say something about the... uh, a central weakness in, in in Spanish democracy. And if that could be got over, I, I think we could be looking at talking about issues like health and the environment and all the things, as you say, we should be talking about instead of being stuck on this repeating record of, you know, independence, Spanish integrity, independence, Spanish integrity. But I take it the reality is, Guy, and we need to wrap it up pretty soon, but presumably the reality is that should the case, should the constitutional case go against Sanchez and against the amnesty, that would be the end of this government? Uh, Yes, I think that it would be extremely difficult for for him if once the the amnesty goes through. I mean, remember, it's not expected to be actually approved um, by the Senate and then come into effect until sometime next year, possibly the spring. Um, and then we will, of course, see this sort of deluge of uh, appeals against it on a legal level. Um, so it could be some time before we find out uh, whether the courts will accept it or not. Um, the government insists it is legally watertight. So clearly it has done its homework, or it thinks it has done its homework, so that it can survive going through the constitutional court. But, you know, the Spanish judiciary, it, it works slowly and it can be unpredictable. And 
unfortunately, it is very politicized. So if uh, ruling goes against uh, the Sanchez government, um, you would think that would be uh, pretty lethal for for the survival of the administration. A last question to you, Guy, if you don't mind. Um, my perception looking from outside is that these issues tend to flare up from time to time because of an election or because of a crisis of some sort and there's like massive demonstrations on the street, which you've been seeing over the last while. And then they calm down a bit. But I just wonder if this government is so precarious and if these issues are so heightened and will continue to be so over the next year or, or so, does that mean that that state of high alert, high anxiety will, will, will continue, do you think, with the demonstrations and all the rest of it? I mean, those who are demonstrating and the, the parties who oppose this amnesty, they seem to be determined to carry on doing this, they say, until there are uh, more, more elections in which they hope uh, the right uh, will, will lead to the right forming a new government. Um, I think you, you have a problem there, a recurring problem in Spanish politics, which is that there's, there's this suspicion that when the right lose out or when they don't, they're unable to, to win an election or to form a government and, and the left is able to form a government, there is, we, we've seen this on a, number, well, a couple of occasions, um, certainly we're seeing it now, they suggest that it's illegitimate, the, the left-wing government which is formed. Um, again, this goes back to the weaknesses in Spanish democracy that you, you could argue that still exist um, in Spain. Um, I think these protests are going to continue um, for some weeks, possibly some months. I don't know what the outcome will be, but I do think it's going to be extremely bumpy legislature for Pedro Sanchez. Paddy, then a last question to you. How does Spain get out of this bind? Uh, in my own simple way, I think what you've described really is the Spanish Civil War isn't really over. I mean, the forces that are arrayed against each other are the same ones that were arrayed against each other in the 1930s, ultimately, aren't they? To a degree, to a degree, though, though one would have to say the left is far less radical now than it was in the 1930s. And, and, and really, until the turn towards right-wing populism in the last 10 years would have been very typical of many, many European governments, you know. Um, uh, and I, I'm afraid I don't know, like I... I used to think I knew the, I think of a Jesuit who once told me when he was ordained, uh, he had all the answers and now he only has questions. I feel a bit like that about politics. I, I really, I find it very difficult to see how Spain will get out of this. Um, but uh, perhaps if this administration could survive, this new administration could survive uh, for perhaps two years. And um, if the amnesty was accepted and the Catalan crisis really was diffused, um, then, uh, then there might be a, a basis for stability going forwards. But um, if the right succeeds or uh, in, in toppling this government or if the Catalan nationalists um, uh, go postal and, 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 uh, and destroy it from another direction... Uh, then I think we're facing a crisis, and you've got to remember the Portuguese prime minister, socialist prime minister, has just resigned also. So we're seeing crises in Iberia and crises all over the EU and, and a division in the European Parliament, even within the European People's Party. All of these things make it very... There's so much dust raised at the moment that I think um, predicting the future is more difficult than ever. 
We're definitely going to have to do more podcasts. So um, we will leave it there um, for today. Thanks very much indeed to, uh, to Paddy and to Guy for joining us. Remember, you can follow our coverage of Spanish politics and other issues in Spain with Guy's reportage uh, on irishtimes.com and we will continue to cover it here too. Thanks very much to our producer Declan Conlon. Our engineer was JJ Vernon. We're going to be back with you later in the week. Until then, thanks so much for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.